Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. We're going to be today continuing uh, the Kingdom of Heaven series. And if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of Matthew. And um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. I don't know about you, but I grew up just loving cars. Like I never had money to like buy cars, but I loved cars. And my grandfather is this mechanical genius who, um, as long as I can remember, like if there's something wrong with, he would never take his car to a mechanic. He would just know immediately how to fix it, what it needed. And even into his, he's 98 now. And uh, even recently we have an old truck that always needs stuff. And I call him and he was just this expert. And I was like, hey, it's kind of doing this. And what do you think it may be? And then he'll be like, well, you need to check this. You need to check this. You need to check this. Like he just knows exactly what to do, and um, I just kind of always enjoyed the cars, like, for whatever reason. Like, I remember the cars that people drive. I know what kind they are. I appreciate and love those kinds of things, and so I'm so grateful that I grew up in a time where I also got to grow up, like, when I was little, like, sitting on my grandparents' lap and learning to steer the car on backcountry roads and stuff like that, sometimes on less than country roads that were actually, like, real roads, but it's like, nobody cared back then, and so it's like, can I drive? And it's like, yeah, hop on and, and steer, and then because of my grandfather's, like, um, had, a, had a cabin in Oklahoma, and so, like, motorcycles and trails and trucks and boats, and so, like, I always enjoyed this opportunity to drive, and then, like, way earlier than should have happened, and I was like, so can I back the car, like, out of the driveway just in a straight line, and I was like, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world when I was 12 and 13 years old, and then one day in Oklahoma, we were getting ready to leave to drive back and we had met there. So we had two cars that needed to come home. And my dad came and he gave me the keys um, to his um, S10 pickup. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with these? And he goes, it's time for your first solo. And I was like, I'm 13 years old. And he's like, yeah, are you, are you serious? He's like, yeah, it's the back roads of Oklahoma. There is nobody out here. Follow us to the main road. And so it's like, oh my gosh. So my mom and dad like went in the car in front of me and I'm driving this truck by myself and I'm just like, this is the best day of my life. It's so amazing. And it's like, what if a cop comes? I don't care. It's the best day of my life. I'm not from Oklahoma. Maybe I can get out of it. And I thought it was incredible. It's like, I don't even remember my actual first drive when I had a license because that day was so incredible. And I don't understand kids these days that wait like till they're 17 and 18 to get their license. It's like the first day that I could get my license, I wanted that freedom. I was waiting at the door. My birthday is the day after Christmas, so I could never get it on my birthday. But as soon as they were open, I just longed for that freedom and to, to be able to take that, that car and drive. And then like fast forward, it changed dramatically when I'm on the other side of that. And like, so now there came this opportunity where my kids are old enough to learn to drive and somebody's got to teach them. And Holly was like, that's you. And it's like, okay, I'll take that one for the team. And uh, so that, that was some of the scariest moments of my life, teaching my three children how to, and they're all, our kids are all 18, within 18 months of each other. So it was like, they're all learning at the same time. And I think that's where my high blood pressure came from. And most of my gray hair is like, oh, can I drive? Can I drive? It's like, yeah, okay. And so do this, teach, and um, 
practice, 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 but they can't do it without you, right? Like that's the, if you, I mean, hindsight, I could have sent them to like the driver's ed place. That would have been a good decision, but we did it all the do it at home kit. But then there comes this day, like after the training and they learn and they're doing pretty good where it's like they get their license and you've got to make a decision, it's time to go. And at some point you take a car that you've paid for, really expensive insurance that you're paying for, years of education that you've invested in, and there just comes a time where you just let them go, and I'll never forget for all three of them watching them drive for the first time, because your prayer life changes dramatically when your kids start driving by themselves, especially when you live in Houston, Texas, right? And so there was this moment where you're just watching them go, and you're terrified, but you know it's right, and you're thinking about what would happen, but at the end of the day, it's like, I may never have to go to HEB again. And things, just kidding, I still go to H-E-B. But it's this mixed emotions. And so in this kingdom of heaven, I had those two moments in my life that have to do with like taking the keys and giving the keys and using that freedom and authority. And the, the passage of scripture we're gonna look at today, there comes a point in time where Jesus looks at his followers and he tosses them the keys to the kingdom. And he's like, take it out for a spin. And it's kind of like, are you crazy? Like, what am I going to do with the kingdom of heaven? Here you go. Here's the keys. Use it. And so we're just going to jump in and learn from that from Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to start in verse 13 and read through verse 20. It'll be on the screen if you don't have it there in front of you. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you... He asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth, will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was Messiah, the Messiah. We're not gonna spend time unpacking that last verse 20 because it's not that controversial. It's just that it wasn't time yet. It wasn't that he was saying, don't tell anybody like it's this big secret. It's like, we gotta wait for the events of the cross. Death, burial, and resurrection are gonna happen, and your time's gonna come very soon. So we're not, that, that's just like, that's not, we can understand that very clearly, right, without going deeper into it. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about some of these questions. And so the first thing I want us to look at is this question, who do people say that I am? Now, Jesus's ministry was expanding and growing, and he's traveling all over the place, and they made it to this place called Caesarea Philippi, which was recently, like, taken over by the Roman Empire, and some, like, Herod's son's name was Philip, and he gave him this town. And what do you do when your dad gives you a town? You name it after yourself. And so it was Caesarea Philippi. Not sure I would do the same thing, but he was a pretty confident guy, I guess. And so what this was, though, was a shining example of the success and confusion of Rome, which meant it was kind of this melting pot of religious perspectives and beliefs. Mount Hermon is here in Caesarea Philippi, and this place is famous from the beginning of when we have the scriptures. This mountain was a place where people worshiped idols. Like It got passed down from one idol to the next to the next during this time 
that was famous for being a place where they sacrificed to a god named Pan, P-A-N. I don't know if that's how you say it or not. But that's what was happening in Caesarea Philippi. And historically, the Canaanites worshipped Balgad. It's just this place of people bowing down and very actively worshipping gods not named Jesus. So that's what was happening in Caesarea Philippi. So the backdrop of Jesus asking this question to his followers was not lost on them because they're standing with the backdrop of this place of people worshiping literally any and everything. And Jesus is looking to his disciples. And he's like, hey, who do these people say that I am? Where do I fit in in the midst of all of these opportunities for worship in the world? It's not unlike the spiritual buffet that the United States of America has become in 2022, where more people live for the glory of the American dream than for the glory of the kingdom of heaven. We're spending our time exalting things, lifting things up. God's not named Jesus. And we have all these belief systems. We live in the most diverse county in the United States. We have belief systems all around us that create this landscape of it's like, well, who do these people Say that Jesus is. It's a fair question even for us now. Who do people say that I am? He's clarifying in the context of polytheism where there's people worshiping multiple gods or or just different faith streams where they have a different God that they worship. Jesus is inviting, he's trying to, he's just starting with the funnel. He's like, okay, from a wide angle, who do people say that I am? And his followers said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the, another one of the prophets. In other words, they're surrounded by a group of people who kind of know who Jesus is because he brings the party now. People show up wherever he goes and want to hear him teach and they want to see the miracles, but they still don't really know who he is. And today in 2022, I believe that's still the case. I think an overwhelming number of people, they really don't know who Jesus is. So it's a good question for us to be aware that we live in a place just like he was standing in where they've heard of Jesus. They're familiar with some things that have to do with Jesus. But do they actually know who he is? And the answer to that is no, they really don't. And even if they think they do, most people do not. It's a really cool introduction. Then second, he hones in a little bit and he looks at the followers. I love this. It says he asked them, plural. So he asked the disciples, plural, but Peter was the only one that answered. We'll get to that in just a second. Well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So it's easy to think that he just asked Peter, but he didn't. He was asking all of them, but Peter was the only one that has an answer. And this just reminds us that Jesus is a master of everything, but he is the best there ever was at strategic questions. A good question cuts through people's smoke screens and deflections of what they would rather talk about than to deal with the condition of their own heart. Because it's easier to just talk about other people, right? Our world is so broken, so messed up, and these people are so terrible, and this and that. And it's just, it's much more, like we have a tendency, don't we, to like, it's easier to talk about other people. We want to talk about what other people believe in. We want to talk about what other people are struggling with. We want to diagnose the world that we're living in. And while Jesus started with that, like, let's pay attention to our context. Let's know where we are. But he didn't let us just stay there talking about other people. He asked all of the followers, okay, 
That's what they say. Now, what is it that you say? He wasn't content to let the question only be about other people. That's easy, and anybody can do that. But have you ever been honest enough to realize that we have this tendency to talk about other people, and we kind of use that for one of two ends. Like, we talk about people who are incredible and doing these amazing things, and then we can compare ourselves to those people, and we think less of ourselves. Or we find some people that are doing some really terrible things and we think of ourselves better than those people. So when we compare ourselves to other people, when we spend more time thinking about what's happening with everybody else, we kind of flock to one of these two things. We start thinking more highly of ourselves than we should, or we start thinking too little of ourselves than we should. But either way, it's creating a reality that's a false reality when all we're doing is obsessing about the world around us. And Jesus is just showing us that it's not about that. The question, this is a personal relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus is personal. It's intimate. It's not about anybody else. It's, it's something we do in community. It's something that we experience together. But you can't come into that community until you've made an individual response to this actual question. Who do you say that he is? Not who do they say, not who does your family say, not who does your friend say, not what some book that you read said, not some podcast you're listening to said. Who do you say that I am? And it's interesting that none of them had an answer except for Peter. Why? These guys have been traveling with Jesus for going on three years right now. There was no mystery about what he was going to say when he would go to these places. He's preaching about the kingdom of heaven. He's demonstrating his power and authority by this incredible teaching, by casting out demons, by, by performing miracles to support the things that he's saying. Like these people should have had, like, there should have been 12 answers to this question piping up in the scripture. But for some reason, there was only one. And I just want us to not be counted out. I want us to realize that this question is for every follower of Jesus. It's not for us to hide behind Peter's answer. It's a question for, it's an opportunity, it's an invitation for us to answer it. And, and I would encourage you, answer it. Who do you say that he is? And then Peter speaks up though, because Peter always speaks up. And he says this, you are the Messiah the son of the living God, right? Right answer, ding, 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 you win all of the prizes. But it's more significant than that. He said, um, but this is the right answer. The son of God sent from God to love the world, to sacrifice himself as the Messiah, to purchase the forgiveness of the sins through his death on the cross, to cleanse people of unrighteousness, and to invite people to follow him through confession, repentance, and obedience. So when Peter's saying you are the Messiah, he's also recognizing the complete package of Jesus as the Messiah, the one who's been prophesied, the one sent from God, the savior of the world, the only way to the Father. Like all of those understandings are included in Peter's understanding of saying that the way that he said it. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I love that Jesus was still asking this question even after them traveling with him for such a long time because 
because I think there's a tendency for us to not check in with ourselves to kind of see where we are in our own faith journey. Like we just assume because it started back here that we're still progressing and we're still growing and we're still experiencing the sanctification that God's leading us in. But sometimes I don't think that we're very good at recognizing where we're hindered, what's in the way, what's a gap, what's an opportunity that we haven't yet identified. And so I love that this answer is so comprehensive because for us, it's good to not only have this question asked to us, but when we give an answer, if we agree with Peter and we speak this truth out loud, again, it answers questions like this. Well, well how am I doing? Well, Christ is the Messiah, so I've got that going for me. That's a good place to be. What do I feel like God's doing in my life? Who do I say that he is? Not when I got saved and not when he returns or when I die to be with him forever. But, you know, what does that mean for me right now? Like, what do I feel like God's doing in my life? Because he is the Messiah, what does that do for me, in me right now? Is there anything that... I'm hearing or feeling compelled to step into? Is there a new calling that God is revealing to me? How's my time alone with him? Are there lies that I believe in? Like he is the Messiah, but am I living my life as though he's just peddling good advice? Like am I aligning my priorities and my spiritual life in a way that it backs up that I believe that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God? Are there sins that I need to confess? Is there distance? Does God feel a million miles away? And if so, why? What's in the way? What's the hindrance? Could be sin, could be distraction, could be a false belief. We're bombarded with lies that we believe all the time that trigger fear and anxiety, maybe even depression. What's hindering? Where do we need, where do we have an opportunity to believe that him being the Messiah and the son of the living God is something that he's calling us to, to not just confess once, but that we respond to every day to help propel us in our journey with him? Who do you say that he is? Are we living more like Jesus is our, our buddy? That he's our advice giver or he's an amazing devotional writer that like, Everybody's like, the Jesus is my co-pilot. Better switch seats. That's not the right, it's not him being Messiah. That's him serving you. He's not an accessory to the life that we want to live. He's not a supporting actor in our movie. It's his movie. We're the supporting cast. He's the Messiah, the son of the living God. Are we wrestling with that and letting it call us up to higher levels of obedience? Or if we're honest, are we treating him like a lot of other things are just as important as he is? But Peter nails it. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he goes on in verse 17 and he said, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I think this is amazing. Like I was, the last part of this passage is where I thought I was just gonna hang out and spend a lot of time um, learning together. But I got just really drawn in here and I think that there's a profound kind of reality in this that we need to lean into. It's so incredibly important is that the right answer, Peter's right answer was not about Peter at all. 
Jesus didn't let Peter, out of boy, Peter, you're so stinking smart. Like your revelation skills are off the chart. I can't believe how well you've studied the Old Testament. You pulled it forward into this moment and you've given this eloquent expression of who I am. You are amazing. Now, that wasn't the point. It's not that Jesus was saying less of him, but what he was saying is that when we have the ability to understand a spiritual reality about Jesus of this magnitude, it has nothing to do with me or you. It has to do with the fact that, that heaven revealed that to him. The God of the universe opened his mind to allow him to understand a deep truth of Jesus, our faith and our understanding of the kingdom, it doesn't originate with us. We need to be careful with apologetics and taking credit for all of the right answers and being able to argue something into belief. If we can argue somebody into something, somebody else can argue them out of something. That's not how expanding the kingdom works. The kingdom grows because God is actively calling people into his kingdom and he uses his followers to proclaim truths that all of a sudden make sense to the person hearing it. It has nothing to do with you and it has nothing to do with me. It has only to do with that the Father who is in heaven is going around unlocking our minds to understand things of God. And so if you read the Bible and you're like, I don't understand that, it's okay. There's some weird stuff in there. It takes time. The other thing is you need God to help you. You need the revelation of the Father in heaven to help you. And so if you're getting hung up and you're struggling, that's a good prayer. God, I don't understand this. Could you help me understand this? Could you help unlock this for me? Could you help show me a way to understand this? Could you send me somebody that understands it better? But I need help understanding this. It's never about how proficient we are at Christian theologies or arguments or answers. It's about continually understanding that the God of heaven is giving us the gift of understanding the truth about who Jesus is, and we're invited to believe that and follow and be a part of expanding the kingdom by continually trusting him to reveal this to other people. So if you're worried about sharing your faith and you're afraid you're going to say it wrong, don't worry. God can handle your bad answers. You can't screw it up. Your job is to be obedient your job is to, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Because of that, I think that's a message worth sharing. So I'm going to share it. So when you share it, don't worry. You did what you were asked to do. Be educated. You want to have good answers if you don't know. But it's up to God to show those people the things of his kingdom. Our job is to be obedient and to follow him. The level of understanding is something that only God can give. It's never about knowing more than somebody else or, or having to be super intelligent about biblical things. It's about following God, understanding more of him, living in community where we're helping each other and going forward together. So if there are things you don't understand and you're here and you're like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't read the Bible because I don't understand it. Start reading the Bible and pray that God would help you understand because that's his job. That's what he does. Blessed are you because that didn't come from your own proficiency. That was a gift from God. Everything that we understand and learn about Jesus is at the power of the Father who gives it to us. So blessed are those who allow God to be God and look to him for more than what they can understand on their own. And then this, gosh, all right. So, and I also say to you, you are, are Peter. And this, 
I'm just like, I haven't been given enough gift of the Holy Spirit to understand this for myself, so I'm doing us a disservice by trying to teach it this morning, but I'm hoping to like whet an appetite for the significance of kind of this experience that's happening. Because what we see here is such an amazing example that faith in Jesus is a relationship. It's an interaction. It's Jesus and Peter, and Peter and Jesus, and Jesus is having himself some fun, right? And this is kind of where it happens. Jesus responds to Peter's way of speaking. He says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. So Peter told Jesus, you're the son of the living God. Jesus told Peter, you're the son of Jonah, right? He repeated the same kind of language. What does that tell us? Jesus meets us right where we are. The same exact way that Jesus responded, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus comes back and he goes, you're Peter and you're the son of Jonah. He's just matching. It's, it's an indication of relationship. But here's the thing. Guess what? Peter's name wasn't Peter. His name was Simon. And so Jesus is, is matching that level of relationship, but he's calling him up to a new identity. He's like, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes, you are Peter, son of Jonah. But let me tell you why this is significant. There's this cool things that, that happens when we're able to clearly speak who Jesus is, is that when we can speak who Jesus is, then he can speak to us who we are. Because he was able to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He didn't say, and you're Simon, son of a fisherman. That's all that you are. But thanks for noticing. He said, no, and I say that you are Peter. Peter is rock, right? What dude wouldn't want to be called like rock as their nickname? Working out for Dwayne Johnson, all right, right? Like before there was Dwayne the Rock Johnson, there was Simon the Rock disciple, right? So, but seeing Jesus who he was allowed Peter to be seen as he was. And what Jesus is saying when he's saying this is like, you are son of Jonah, but that is not who you are. That's not who you are because you are a son of the living God also. And you may think you're Simon, but you're Peter. You are a rock. And I think there's a tendency for us that we use our flesh and blood as an excuse. Well, I'm just the son of a simple this or that. I'm limited by my DNA. I can't do this. This is all that I am. I'll never be this. I'll never be that. I'm going to tell you, you got to throw all that out the window because when you're able to say who Jesus is and he's able to look at you and respond to you with who you are, he's got a name for you too. You may not be rock. You may be helper. You may be compassion giver. You may be missionary. You may be evangelist. You may be teacher. You may be encourager. You may be worship leader. You may be pastor. But what I do know for you is that as a son and daughter of the Most High, 
revealing the truth about Jesus, when we come to the place and we say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he's going to turn around to you and say, you are not your real name, but your purpose name for the kingdom of heaven. And though this is where you've come from and this is who you are, this is who you are becoming. And it's a new identity. It's a new kingdom skill set that's so much more than you would ever think that you were put on this planet to be a part of. We don't get to hide behind, well, it's just who I am. And do you know who my mom is? And Or sometimes the opposite, right? Sometimes our origin, like family, is so incredible. We just feel like we'll never be that good. We'll never be what they were. Jesus is saying, just say my name, see who I am, and you can see who you are. And when we are able to put Jesus in his proper place, then he'll be able to see the opportunity to tell you who you are. So I don't know what words you've been using for yourself, what self-condemnation words you use when nobody else is around, what insecure words, what fear words, but when you say you are the Christ, the son of the living God, all of that is gone. That is not who you are. That may be who you were, but you are Peter. And Peter was only known by his kingdom identity for the rest of his life. That's what he's referred to. You have a kingdom identity waiting for you on the other side of saying and believing you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Allow him to show you how he sees you and you'll never be the same. And so then there's this part. So I also say to you, Peter, and on this rock. Now, we could spend a whole series on this rock thing, right? Like the Catholic Church took this one passage and that's why there's popes. They thought Jesus was saying to Peter, you are the head of the church, Peter, the man, like a pope. And so every pope since then is in the tradition of Peter, who is the sole head, a man being the sole head of the church. And if you come from a Catholic background, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but biblically that doesn't really hold up. There's a lot more going on there than Peter being the head of the church. And Jesus is such a master of teaching, right? He uses everything around him to help deliver a message. And so in this, I think there's a picture uh, there, James. So he's standing in Caesarea Philippi. This is like that. This is where they worship the God of of Pan in or Pan in, in Jesus's time. It's still intact today. You can go there and you can see it. But what do you notice about the landscape of that place? Rock, right? Like it's a rock. It's just a big mountain that's a huge rock. So when Jesus, that's where Jesus is teaching this to his disciples. So when he's saying, hey, Peter, you're not Simon, you're a rock like this. You're strong, you're catalytic. And Jesus is also saying, and on this rock, but there's a gender change in the word. So it's Petros for Peter, it's Petra for rock. And so he's not referring to Peter anymore when Jesus says, and on this rock, he's just playing with the word. Or does it mean this big rock that they're looking at? Or is the rock the confession of of Peter, or is Jesus referring to himself being the cornerstone and the capstone and the stone that the builders rejected? And my answer to that is just kind of like, I think so. Yeah, like, you, there's no way to know. 
except for that there's not just this one usage of the word in this one sentence. It's everywhere. And so it seems like Jesus is making the most of his environment. He's talking about Peter's confession. Obviously, Peter is a strategic leader for the church going forward, but Peter never considered himself to be the head of the church. He didn't elevate himself. And I think something that actually helps us quite a bit is I just, why don't we hear from Peter, right? What did he have to say about this? It's blowing my mind too. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is obviously still wrestling with these words that Jesus said long after Jesus is gone. Peter's leading the church and he's writing instructions and encouragement. And he says this, as you come to him, him being Jesus, a living stone, a rock, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined to do, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So there's all these prophetic writings about Jesus and the cornerstone and being rejected and being a rock of offense, a rock of stumbling. And so Peter's connecting this one teaching of Jesus back to all of these other things that were prophesied about Jesus, but he's also processing it through the teaching of Jesus. And now he's applying it to the current followers of Jesus in his context, because why he learned from the master teacher. And so he's taking all of these things in 10 or 20 years, Years later, he's still trying to work it out. Like Jesus, rock, stones, living stones. I'm a rock. This is a rock. The confession's the rock. And then like 10 or 20 years later, it comes out like this. Hey, a living stone rejected by men is who Jesus is. There is no rock more foundational than Jesus. He's the foundation of all things. Me, I'm a little rock. I'm a living stone. I'm to be built on the foundation of Jesus with the other stone of his followers. We love this when we go to England. So our first trip to England, we saw like all of these um, walls and got a picture of this. And so there's all these walls and they're just like, they go on for acres and acres and acres. There is no mortar in those walls. There is no glue in those walls. The only strength of those walls that have been standing for thousands of years it's just how well they complement each other. These living stones that are all different fit together to form this thing built on a place that's stable enough to support it. And I think this is like a picture of what makes sense for us. We're all different. We don't all have the same skill sets, but when people look at us, they should see a wall like this. They're just all together forming something strong that represents something stronger holding it up. We're the living stones. So, Jesus, so Peter is, is bringing all this together. We could talk a lot about Jesus' fun with rocks, right? Like, I, it's just like, who knows? 
but it invites us in to understand it. This combination of you are the Messiah, that's a rock hard confession of Jesus. That's a rock. We can build on that. And Jesus is like, and you're a rock and I can build some things on you. And I'm a rock strong enough to support you and hold you up. Then we're a community of rocks and living stones being put together by Jesus. And then this gets to the kind of the last little bit. And then he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. James, can you put up that picture of the rock again, of the mountain? So they literally believed that the gates of Hades were inside this rock. Historically, they felt like there was a portal passageway in this idol worship place that was the entrance into death and destruction in Hades. So Jesus wasn't just picking like random words out of the air. He's still standing in front of this. And he's like, hey, the gates of Hades that all of these people who don't understand me and who are worshiping other gods, I got something bigger than that. I got something stronger than that. I got something that overpowers that, that's more important than death. He was using it on purpose. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. And Jesus says, I will build my church, but let me, I want to, put this into perspective, in the Gospels alone, the word king, just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word kingdom is used 126-ish times, depending on translations. 126, that's a lot in just four books, mostly used by Jesus. Jesus talked about the kingdom all the time. That's why we're talking about it in a series. You know how many times church is used in the Gospels? First four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Three. Three times in the Gospels, and this is one of the three. And the word church is not what you and I think about when we think about church. It's just, it's a word called ecclesia, and what it means is a called out assembly or congregation. There is nothing holy about the word ecclesia. It has nothing to do with God. There was gatherings about government and political ideals, right? There can be social club, like assemblies or congregations. It's just like people gathering for the purpose of something that they believe in. And so the word church is not something Jesus was saying to form an institution or a religious system. He was saying, it's just a group of people sold out to the kingdom of God who meet together. That's what it was. In our day, I think we think of church as being higher than the kingdom, but it was very clear for Jesus that kingdom is everything. And church follows obedience to the kingdom. Church is a positive consequence. If you have people building the kingdom, Jesus builds his church. I have distinct joy in telling pastors all the time, it's not your job to build the church. Jesus very clearly says it's his. I will build the church. Well, it's Jesus' job to build the church, then what are we supposed to do? Like we grew up, like invite people to church, tell people about church, bring people to church. And it's like, unfortunately, that might be out of order. Because guess what? You can't go to church. It's going to create a problem for our language for the rest of our lives. You can't go to church. Stop going to church. What? You can't go to church because you are the church. Church goes with you. Wherever you are, the church is there. This is an elementary school. I don't know if you knew that. This is PE. That's what we do. Every Sunday, we come and have PE in the Catholic gymnatorium. 
This is not a holy institution. What is holy? People gathered in the name of Jesus sold out to the kingdom of God. You are the church. We are the church, not the people, not the place. So we need to understand that. You are being built. We are being built. Our gathering is being built by God, by Jesus at the command of his father. And when does he build it? It says this. When we do something with the keys of the kingdom. So I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and says, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. And it's like, it's really actually kind of simple. Jesus has the keys and he's like, here, take it for a spin. Uh, I'm not ready. You are. It's been ready. It's been time. It's time to get moving in the kingdom. Time to take those keys. What do keys do? They unlock things, right? I'm gonna unlock something and bring it to reality. How do I do that? I bind and I loose. What does that mean? Bind means you stop something bad from happening. Loose means you make room for something good to happen. That's it. We stand on the kingdom principles. We work for the, the will of God. And a mentor of ours, he said it this way, that we should be praying and living for an open, to live under an open heaven. And this is what I think that means, is that when Jesus taught his people to pray, he said, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's in heaven? No more tears, no more pain, eternal worship, the glory of God, the radiance of God, the presence of God, the saved of God. I mean, streets of gold, like just everything in heaven is amazing. And what I think the keys are the kingdom of is where we are, we get to unlock a little bit of heaven and help it come to earth. We are ambassadors of the kingdom. And where we go, we can unlock the kingdom. We can bind and loose. That's not acceptable in the kingdom of God. I'm gonna stand against that. This is needed to represent the kingdom of God. I'm doing this. I'm gonna love my neighbor. I'm gonna stand against injustice. I'm gonna bless people. I'm gonna be generous. I'm gonna take kingdom values and I'm gonna take those keys and I'm gonna drive that around for my whole life. And I'm gonna pound through the gears in the name of Jesus, bring in the good news of the kingdom. And where that happens, church isn't a problem. The church is not in trouble. The gates of hell will never, will never overpower it. This is what's also kind of crazy if you think about it. Gates are like defensive postures. Gates are built to keep people out. So when Jesus is saying the gates of hell won't overpower the church, I used to think it meant that like, you know, the church was like Ukraine is right now. It's like the enemy's coming after them and just blowing them to smithereens, but somehow they're standing their ground and not dying. Like I used to think that was kind of a picture of what Jesus was talking about there. Like they can beat us, but they're not gonna win. And eventually we'll have enough remnant to see this thing through. But if a gate is a defensive position, then that means the expansion of the church is an offensive position. That means that we are on the move. We are gaining ground and they can't stop it. We're not victims. We're citizens of the kingdom with the keys of the authority of the kingdom to bind and loose in Jesus' name. So let me just give us some response questions to just kind of wrestle with some of these things and see what God might be speaking. The first question that I want to ask you, and if you guys are house church leaders, you may want to 
you know, take a picture and grab these and talk about them. Number one, who do you say that he is? That's a good question. If you get nothing else to, to wrestle with today or think about, who do you say that he is? Number two, what does it mean to you that he is the Messiah? So what? What does that have to do with your life? What can you do to walk in that reality? How can you help others have a better answer to their question of who he is? How has revelation been a blessing to you? How have you experienced God helping you understand something that you couldn't have understood on your own? How is how you see you different from how he sees you? How is what you call yourself different from the kingdom identity that Jesus is calling you? And last, what are you feeling called to do with the keys of the kingdom? You've got them, catch them, let's go. What are you called to bind and loose? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.